Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. Today's episode is a timely exploration into the often overlooked topic of mental health. Horatio Clare, author of the gripping memoir Heavy Light, takes us through his personal journey of breakdown treatment and recovery and tackles the taboo surrounding sectioning and attention in hospitals. Originally recorded at Bradford Literature Festival 2022, please note this episode contains content some may find disturbing. Everyone. Um, my name's Peg Alexander. I'm uh, the host of this session. I'm a journalist, presenter, TV, radio, podcasts, uh, and lots of events like this. So basically, I am a lucky person who gets to talk to people for a living, which is not a bad way to make a living. Let me introduce our guest today, Horatio Clare. Horatio is an author known for travel, memoir, nature, and children's books, and now for having written about his own personal experience of coping with mental ill health in his new book, Heavy Light, A Story of Madness, Mania and Healing. He says he's interested in the edges of things. So we're going to talk lots of edges of things, I think, Horatio. You're actually Welsh, but you now live in Hebden, just down the road. Um, As well as writing, you regularly broadcast on BBC Radio 4. You also lecture in non-fiction at the University of Manchester. Welcome to Bradford. Thank you very much. Thanks for turning out, Bradford. The new name that we've got for Bradford, which you'll obviously know, being only just down the road in Hebden, this is the new official name for Bradford. It is Bradford City of Culture 2025. (laughs) 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 So we just have to celebrate that as much as as we can. Exciting, exciting times uh, for Bradford. So... We're going to talk about your book, and we said we just met in the green room just earlier, and you said, I know, let's talk about the light mm. part of it. So we're mm. going to try and, we're not going to play it for laughs, are we? But we're going to kind of try and keep it light if we can, even though we're going to be talking about some really heavy things. Um, and let, let's just start with the fact that this, your book is very much a book of two halves, isn't it? You've got your first part of the book, which is your own personal story of what you went through recently and then the second part of the book is almost like the kind of the journalist side of the book which is you looking at the mental health system about how we treat people so let's start off on the first half of the book sure i just thought you were unbelievably brave to write so honestly about what you went through in 2019 thank you um hello thank you so much for coming so you are my most elite and smallest audience of an almost two-year book tour, which just goes to show, you know, who would turn out and listen to some git with a posh voice going on about how he went mad and is now going to improve your lives. I mean, you'd have to be crazy. <laughs> so you're obviously the sanest uh, city I visited, the Berlin of the North. Um, I'd never been, really. It's wonderful. Um, so, yes, I had a breakdown at the end of 2018, uh, and I went properly mad. Uh, crazy as a fruitcake, nuts as a bag of snakes. And the language of mental health is quite contested and delicate. You know, how you identify what you're diagnosed with, what you or people you love might suffer from. Um, But I see it all as degrees of madness, really, and I think that's not necessarily a frightening thing. I think it's part of us. 
if you've ever had anxiety or insomnia or depression, they're all, uh, even grief, even love, after all, uh, all kinds of deranging forces. Uh, the root of madness is proto-Germanic, gemeindas, meaning changed for the worse. And, you know, given that we start off in a warm womb, and then we spend, you know, months or years grazing at will from a milk-hanging pair of beautiful breasts, the system of life, which then goes school, work, pension, death, is definitely changed for the worse. Um, so madness is very much I think, part of the human experience. Um, and I guess my story has been one of coming to befriend and understand it. Um, so I had a breakdown for very obvious reasons. I was, uh, who does this remind you of? Uh, privileged, posh, lying, cheating, uh, dashing around the country, uh, bluffing, working too hard, and trying to do an impression of a decent husband, father, man. Um, so I know exactly what it's like to be the Prime Minister. Uh, I, I, but he is more robust than I am, and perhaps um, worse. So uh, towards the end of 2018, I was trying to publish two books. I was launching a new course. I was trying to get home at the end of the night. I was lying and cheating. And I was using small amounts of cannabis um, because I knew it had a history of making me manic. But I wanted that little extra superpower, that speed of thought, um, as an advantage. And I was drinking quite heavily too, to switch off. Uh, and it came down in the most amazing way, really. It went from hypermania, which is just talking too fast and always optimistic and full of excellent plans and not really needing to sleep much, into mania, which is that but worse, where you really don't need to sleep, where your grandiose ambitions are limitless. And if only everyone would believe you and listen to you, you could change the world and do incredible things tomorrow. Uh, Can I just ask you a question on that? Yeah. Does it feel as real as in your book? Well, um, it is real. In those moments? You do feel. I mean, you don't need to sleep. You have got great ideas. Um, and you um, are driven by optimism and kind of hypersexuality. And it's like a great drug. Um, and that shades then into psychosis. So when I heard the word psychosis, I thought that's somebody, you know, stabbing people in the shower sort of thing or running down the street with a sword. Psychotic. <laughs> But actually, it just means suffering from delusions. It's quite psychotic in a way. <laughs> Unless it was just me. Good that timing. That. Yeah, yeah, in which case, we have a problem. Um, so you, it's like an imaginary world. Like if you come out of a Bond movie when you're nine and you're in it, it was like that. But as it starts as a mental game and then it takes over. So you have one foot in reality and one foot in delusion, and then they're both in delusion, and that is your reality. Um, and that was amazing. I mean, I was in contact with aliens. I was working for MI6. You were going to marry Kylie. I was going to marry Kylie. Uh, and I was looking forward to you know, the world confirming these suspicions. Um, the woman in Hebden Bridge in the GCHQ T-shirt had a lot to answer for. Um, she was real. It was all real. I never heard a voice that wasn't there or saw a thing that didn't exist. But I interpreted things that you would hear, like the radio, uh, as talking to me with hidden messages. It's, none of it's very original in a way. Like There is a way in which we break down. And when I went back in the second half of the story to interview the people who dealt with me then, they all said, 
Oh, yeah, we quite often have Kylie Minogue. <laughs> I thought, what, what is it about her? I have a theory that everyone <laughs> in the entire planet fancies Kylie Minogue. Yeah, she's obviously lovely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she was a great fiancé. Um, <laughs> very understanding and patient. Um, and so then I was sectioned, and it was hard to section me uh, because I'm persuasive, uh, because I had some vocabulary, like I'm seasonally affected, cannabis psychotic, uh, I'm having a relationship breakdown, I'm using drugs. All of those are good reasons for them not to section you. Um, and if you have to section somebody, somebody you love, which can be the very frightening and awful thing to do, and also the kindest thing you can do, you do need to use certain forms of words, like danger to themselves, or you, or others. And um, the services, finally, a brilliant woman, the lady who sectioned me, a social worker. So what you need to do if you need help urgently is find who is the approved mental health professional in your area. AMP, that's the magic words. If you can get them, they'll turn up with two doctors and hopefully take you somewhere good. And I went somewhere wonderful. Um, field head, forensic psychiatry hospital, loony bin, as we called them when I was growing up, uh, in Wakefield. And they gave me two doses of quetiapine, which is a strong antipsychotic. And within 60 hours, the builders outside were no longer GCHQ. They were builders. And so then I was one foot in each reality again, but coming this way, and that was confusing. Because I built up this bank of mental you know, certainties. Like, remember the drones at Gatwick? that shut Gatwick. They still don't know really what that was. It might have been a mass delusion. That was the aliens, you know, and they, they were, that was like solid evidence. And then I would have comic misunderstandings of people which would turn into solid evidence. So they said you presented as sane after 60 hours, and that's what you're all doing now, because there is no objective measure of sanity or insanity. We can only take as we find. Um, so my brilliant social worker who sectioned me said, I look for people who, nutty is fine. She said, I'm nutty. I need to find out if they're dangerously nutty in a way that isn't normal for them. So it's all deviations from the norm. But it turns out there's an awful lot of myth in the whole thing. So you would have heard of serotonin, and how that's good, and too much you know, can be bad, or too little and we're miserable. Actually, it turns out that we have no way of measuring the serotonin level in any brain, and if we could, we wouldn't know what was a healthy amount. They're all hypotheses. So the psychiatrist that I saw said, if you want out, you need long-term medication. Here's your choice. Sodium valproate, lithium, um, and when I took aripiprazole. And you need to take that for basically the rest of your life or for three years to start with anyway. Uh, and so I had felt like I was stuck because I'm a child of the 90s. You know, I'm happy with the legal drugs. Legal ones terrify <laughs> the life out of me. Um, I went to University of York. Uh, so I was very, I took them to get out and then I stopped taking them and I lied about it for ages. And it turns out that there is indeed a third way. And you can only find what that third way is for you if you get individual treatment, which can be expensive, like £60 an hour for a therapist, and you need to find one that's good and free, which is really hard, and have the money, uh, and do the digging and the reading and the research. And that's what the second half of the story is. We'll come on to talk yeah. about that. Um, uh, in a minute, we'll come on to talk about some of those therapies that you know are being used elsewhere and, and, and some of the options. One of the things that really shocked me was that when you were in the hospital, I think it was six weeks you were in in the end. No, uh, more like 17 days, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was right. about, f about 11, absolutely in a straight line. Yeah. Then they let you out and you come back in to prove yeah. that you can come and go. 
Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was about more like I think three or four weeks. Ago. About three. But two during weeks that inside. time, you didn't have any talking therapies at all, did you? No, they're not available. Um, the men I was on a male ward do get CBT, which they they say is not very helpful because they don't want strategies to deal with tomorrow. What they want is somebody to talk about what their father did to them, in the words of one of my friends, ten years ago or twenty. You know, they're not getting trauma therapy. So the way to think mm. about it, if you're trying to help someone, is symptoms and causes. You know, medication is brilliant for symptoms. It, can, it will save lives. It's fabulous. But it's not addressing causes. So that was a real issue. And when I went back a year later to do classes with them, that's what they kept saying. Was we're desperate to talk and not be judged because you have to present as sane all the time in the hospital. Otherwise, you know, it, it, they just you never let you out. So... Yes, it, it, it was a really good hospital which really showed up the problems in the system, mm. or some of them, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and, and, and you've got a lot of time and respect for a lot of the people who were working there. Not, not for ma- all of them. Yeah. No, they were magnificent, yeah, they yeah. really were. I mean, they would go every day volunteer, well, you know, to be paid a very minimum wage, really considering their skills and pressures, to a hospital. And if any of you are in that sector, you will know that you go into it with one hope, you know, to make a difference. But you don't necessarily get the time if you're a nurse to spend time with the patients. You're running around fighting a system that's kind of bulging at the seams. So that was it. But I was lucky because we had a good group of patients. And so much of treatment and recovery is about networks. It's about sharing with your friends and family and not feeling that you are the victim in a way, that you're different, that you're mad and they're sane. It's about all of you moving together. And that's formidably effective. Yeah. You, you mentioned friends and family there. Your partner, Rebecca, features a lot in the book. Yes. Um, and you talk quite a lot in both parts of the book about the impact on her, the impact on your son, the impact on your stepson. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that is a recurring thing is that Rebecca wants you to take medication yes. and wants you to take drugs. And you do, at some points you do, so, and then you don't, and you pretend to her that you are. That's right. Um, one of the things I was very struck by, there was quite early on, is around the lack of support for Rebecca as well, in terms of... Almost none. <coughs> ...coping yes. with what you were going through as a family. It's true. Yes, yeah, so it's much easier to go mad than be the partner of someone who's going mad, I mean, without question. And I think probably the same is almost true in depression, is that you know, when you're in it... It's so submersive, um, but when you're coping with it, it can, you can be, feel so hope, helpless and unhelped and mm-hmm. um, no way out. And the, we found that West Yorkshire police were awesome. I mean, time and again, they would stay over their shifts, they would go the extra mile, because I ran my car off the road, ran around naked, dug holes in my flat wall. It was just constant madness. And they were brilliant with me, and they were brilliant with Rebecca. And obviously... I'm a journalist, I know how to deal with the police, I sound like I do. My outcomes might have been very different had I not been white and privileged. I mean, and, and statistically, that is the case. You're much more likely to end up in A&E, you're much more likely to get sectioned, and you're much more likely to have a bad time of being treated, which is an f- evil indictment of our And you system. also say you felt like you knew the right words to say to people, well, to did. convince them that you weren't as yeah, as you were. but also, you know... Um, so... Rebecca's experience was that actually the first line, the home-based treatment team were hopeless and they just wanted to get her off the books, that they wanted it to be drugs and alcohol, that they just wanted to move on really, and that they were always looking for an out, which I was always supplying them. 
Um, and then this comes to this about the pills. So this is really important. If you went to a doctor, what you want, in a way, is for you to have a chemical imbalance and then to have a balancing chemical pill because everybody's happy then. Your relatives are desperate for it. You're desperate for it. Doctor's goddamn desperate for it because he's only got 15 minutes. The problem is that there is no chemical imbalance. That theory was debunked, and psychiatry now disowns it. They agree that's not it. What there is are a load of hypotheses, the dopamine hypotheses, the GABA glutamate hypotheses, the serotonin hypotheses, and they're all treated effectively by pills which are prescribed by trial and error. So they're not going to take a look at your brain and go, ah, yes, you need lithium. They're going to say, try lithium. And if it doesn't agree with you, we'll either down the dose or we'll mix it with something else. And they were very frank about this. This is why they gave me the choice. Like, why give the lunatic the choice of what pills he takes? And the honest answer is because we don't know. We, we, by trial and error and side effect is how it's prescribed. And that can work. You know, I've got great friends and successful writers, uh, just among my peer group, who take, um, like, Cyclopram or whatever it's called. And, it, you know, there are lots of people who take it, and it's, it works for them. The problem is that it really is only treating the symptom, not the cause. And for the cause, you've got to have therapy, really. And the thing I didn't realize was that psychology and psychiatry fundamentally disagree, or have done up to now. I think they're coming together, but they really do disagree. Because psychiatry still operates as if there were sane people here, mad people here, pill them up and they'll move. Actually, psychology, psychotherapy believes it's, a, it's an arc, it's a spectrum. We're all on it. If we subject you to different life events, you will move along that spectrum, regardless of who you are. If anyone had eaten as little, you know, smoked as much, slept as little, and run around as much as me, they would have needed hospitalization at the end of the two months, just as I did. Uh, and I could get myself back to hospital really quickly and easily. All I'd need would be like a couple of eighths, uh, and about two weeks, and I reckon I'd be on my way back there. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, no problem at all. And the other question, the other issue that Rebecca raised with you, <clears throat> one that I know all about, is the challenges around data information and ownership of information, because there's no requirement on healthcare professionals to talk to relatives. That's right. And that is a very, very difficult situation when you're the person who is trying to deal with that, and yet the professionals won't talk to you. To their credit, um, so you get somebody who's basically designated your carer or next of kin, and that was Rebecca, and then I tried to beat that system by saying it should be my mum, who's in South Wales and 80 and pretty crazy herself. Um, so that was unhelpful, because obviously I, wasn't, I, tried, I was trying to stay out. Um, but to their great credit, they would consult Rebecca as much as they could. So my responsible clinician, when you're sectioned, you have very few rights or powers, uh, and the person who has them all is your responsible clinician, who's a psychiatrist. And he was talking to Rebecca a lot. Like he did a really good job of saying, how do you feel if I let him out for a night? You know, I, what, what do we need to do together to move forward? Which is very progressive, actually. Because, mm -hmm. um, yes, data is, is, a, is a big thing. Um, but I, th I mean, what we now know is that... So I end up ringing this wonderful woman, Yasmin Ishak, and I'm recovering. And I say, Yasmin, I've Googled myself to hell. I am definitely, everything's coming back to me is saying that I'm bipolar. There's no cure. And I don't want to take these pills. Have I got any choices? And she said, she runs the Open Dialogue Trial in Britain, which has had a phenomenal success. 
And she said, well, first, only keep bipolar as a word if it's useful to you. We would have called it manic depression a few years ago. It, a few years before that, we would have said you had a breakdown from which you could recover. So only keep the language that's useful to you. And then it's not about cure. Of course it's not. It's about healing. You're going to have to re kind of conceive your life as a healing attempt or a healing journey, actually. And as a travel writer, it was like a light coming on for me. I was like, yeah, of course. Because journeys have reversals. Things go wrong. I've had wheels fall off land cruises. I was attacked by a hippopotamus once. Uh, <laughs> and actually, that's okay because that's part of the arc of what it is. Um, and so I was hugely lucky. But I'll just tell you a quick story, which I think is rather amazing. So in northern Lapland, in Karelia, uh, northern Finland, on the border with Russia, the White Sea, there were people there, the Sami, the reindeer herders, and they had the most perfectly balanced, healthful life in terms of nature, diet, family networks, culture. They had oral poetry that came down to them, passed down through families and, and communities. They could recite hundreds of lines, word perfect. And they had shamanic leaders, healers, and drum dancing. And I saw it once, drum dancing, in uh, Greenland, and it was absolutely extraordinary. You know, it's one of those moments where you think, oh yes, there, you know, there are not just, not just one God, but many, maybe. Um, or many, one God with many faces. It was incredible. And then modernity came quite recently to Finland uh, and the north, and they took away their livelihood. They moved them off into the cities. They drove them away from their nomadism. Their poetry was replaced you know, by our kind of culture. And worst of all, Christian missionaries um, burnt their drums and told them that they were pagan and infidel. And the result was that the Sami developed the highest rates of schizophrenia and psychosis in Western Europe. So that clearly wasn't because there was a gene. Although these things seem to travel in families, they don't. There is no genetic marker that anyone has yet found. There is no biomarker. And the search for it is incredibly expensive and sophisticated. But as yet, it doesn't seem to be that it is in the body. Anyway, what the Finns didn't do was dose them, uh, didn't pill them up. They sat them down and talked to them. So if it had been me, supposing I'm crazy, you're my peer supporter, so you're like me now. Mm. You've been through it. You're the doctor, madam, and you're the, the open dialogue practitioner. So this is called open dialogue, and you're my family. You express your anxieties, like, he's been nuts, and I don't want him coming out again tonight without some pills. And you say, well, as somebody who's been there, I know that the pills are going to make him anxious, but I can see that what's your anxiety? And the doctor says, my anxiety is both over-medication and under What's your anxiety ratio? Well, I don't want to be banged up for very long, if, if at all, you know. So then we all come to an agreement. Maybe we say, small pill, one night, let's all meet again tomorrow. And you talk it out. So rather than me feeling like mm -hmm. I'm the nutter and you're all against me, you're the system, the world, we're a crisis group who share our anxieties. Yeah. Most importantly, the people in official positions, the doctors and psychiatrists, they share their anxieties. Because the thing about the mad is that we can tell if we're being bluffed or lied to. You know, you've seen somebody on the street look at you in the eye, and you know they see you, even if what they give you back is crazy. So we could tell immediately on the ward if um, they weren't really thinking about us, if they were impatient, if they were basically trying to brush us off, um, or if they were under tremendous pressure and making decisions, you know, badly. It was all very clear to us. Open dialogue, this process of talking in networks, has an 83% success rate 
five to two years return to work with minimal medication or none. Our regime for schizophrenia and psychosis, treatment as usual, which is almost entirely pharmaceutical, 9%. So the fact yep. is the answers exist. We just haven't yet got around to implementing them. So let's move on to that, that, that part of the book, the second yeah. part of the book, which is... Uh, where you go off, you talk to you talk to a whole range of people. It, it, it's the journalist side of the book, trying to look at, at what's gone on and what the answers are. <clears throat> I just want to one of the things that really really stood with me when I was reading it is something you've just mentioned, Horatio. But I want to go back to it, mm. and it's that whole question about what what name, what label do you give to things, and the nervous breakdown label. Yes. Of everything in the book, do you know what? That was one of the things that, that made me think the most. Because one of the things you say in the book, you talk about your dad. And, mm. and you say that in the past, if people had a, a, a time of crisis, it was often just called a... I don't mean just called a breakdown, yes. but it was called a breakdown. Was a people breakdown. were sent to hospital. Yeah. Everyone said they've had a nervous breakdown. But the expectation on that was that you'd get through... It was circumstantial. Yes. It was everybody understanding what else was going on in their lives, to get through it and you'd come out and you could go yeah. back to normal life. Yeah. Now, with us, so much talk of mental health and diagnosis, one of the things you're worried about is that that gives people lifelong diagnosis and says you've got a lifelong condition. Not necessarily this might be a response to circumstantial situations and what's going on in people's lives. And you're quite worried about the role of big pharma and pharmaceuticals in that. Is that a fair... Yes. I mean, so Talk to us a bit more about well, that whole concept. I mean, I mean there, there are, you know, life itself is obviously a lifelong condition. And so if you uh, experience, and not, uh, huge numbers of people do, of course, um, I think that's a human thing to experience trauma and disturbance, distress, excitement. Um, and given that you will move along that spectrum over your life, of mm. course you will. Um, they are all lifelong conditions. So bipolar is a real thing, whether you call it manic depression or a propensity to break down, or um, whatever. I mean, it, we all, lots of us have different ways of seeing it. And with the internet, self-diagnosis is massive. So doctors will tell you that they get young people come in and tell them, I've got bipolar, or I've got anxiety. And what a doctor doesn't do is necessarily shift that label, because if it's helpful to them, then that's great. I teach at Manchester, I had a student who popped up in our first seminar and said, right, I'm bipolar, so that's going to affect this term for me. And that was wonderful for everybody, because it... You know, she wasn't unhappy or scared about it. She was clearly uh, managing it, and we were all going to go with that. And I could really see that. And I've had people come up to me at the end of events like this and say, talk about how bipolar would help them. And the same as, you know, they're prone to depression, sure. The only thing I worry about is that they come with, especially if you read the internet extensively and the literature, is that they come with a whole freight of expectation which is self-fulfilling. You know, it's, it's going to be. If you decide that you have got social anxiety, then every social situation that you encounter will be preloaded for you. Uh, and the wonderful David Robson, whom I'm interviewing after, his book says that a depressed person in a room will look for faces that aren't smiling and will read those faces and will completely miss the ones that are grinning at them. Our brain actually creates the reality in which we inhabit. It does it by confirmation bias, expectation kind of management. So... I do worry about that slightly. And it did seem to me, it does seem to me deeply wrong that we should have poorer recovery rates now or about the same than we did 100 years ago. 
Or, as you pointed out, apparently recovery rates for us are lower than they are they in, are in, 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 world. The yes, in the developing it, world. Because family networks are stronger, effectively. Yeah. And you know, there's a story I was told recently of a man in West Africa who was seen as a pillar of his community. Uh, he was serious. He, he was like a, a, a real leader. And uh, he met somebody from Southampton, uh, and they moved back to Southampton and got married. And very soon he was sectioned. Uh, and, and dosed, and the reason was that he was a voice hearer, and in his community in West Africa, that made him a great man, and, and of course that would definitely manage the way you responded to the world, whereas mm. in Southampton he was a lunatic, and needed to be herded up. So, um, and I don't mean to use those words casually, I only do it because I, I'm into kind of demystifying it, and definitely attacking stigma, which is something we can all do. Mm. So, in terms of Big Pharma, I didn't see conspiracy particularly, but there's no doubt that the system works like a massive conspiracy. In that, you would be, you've got 15 minutes with a psychiatrist, he'll say, how are you feeling? He won't do much time, or she won't, or they won't do much time on what's happened to you a bit. Just like, okay, so you've broken up with your girlfriend, uh, you've been having a really bad time, you've lost your job, uh, you can't sleep anymore, uh, and you're suicidally depressed. Right. Mentally, he's going into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of disorder, Mental Disorders. He's finding, or she's finding, where you are, and that's implying certain pills. And the fact is that that manual was drawn up by the American Psychiatric Association, who are effectively bought and paid for by Big Pharma and academic psychiatry. I mean, the DSM-5, 80% of the task force members of the, of the manual had taken money from the pharmaceutical industry and clearly had an in investment in having their conditions in the book and then it all works to insurance, because if I can be categorized as bipolar 2, then my pills are paid for by my insurers, and it all works beautifully. Um, and of course, the, the effect is fairly catastrophic, I would say, although if I had a, you know, my psychiatrist friend here, he would say, actually, we are saving huge numbers of lives, and these pills really do work. And of course they do. Um, the worry is massively, the worry is polypharmacy which is when you just get given loads and loads and loads, and your life becomes pill management, effectively, and side effect management. And I think that's a crime. So thinking about the solutions and where we go, um, you, in, in the book, you talk to, you talk to the chief exec of a, of a health authority, you yeah. talk to the police, you talk yeah. to the social workers and the nurses who cared for you. Yeah. You talk to lots of people. You've, you've mentioned open dialogue treatment there. Yeah. What, what do you think are the answers to, for us to create a society and a world that is better for people who are experiencing psychosis and challenges and better for everyone that's around them? Well, the answers that I got, uh, so I'm, I'm in no way a kind of legislating politician, but I can tell you what the best answers I heard were. Um, it's ground up. So from childhood onwards, we have to think about what a mentally healthful society is. At the moment, we, we know perfectly well that we have a system that we can't seem to get out of, which is about um, money, risk, resources versus chaos, mental health, and environmental breakdown. So clearly, it's, it's, it, it, as it is, it doesn't work. It's killing us all, planet first. So in Grenoble, they removed all advertising from the whole city. You can't make an advert bigger than a piece of A4. Even if you own the shop, that can go in your window. That's it. When you get there, you, you, at first you don't really realize, and then someone says, you've noticed there's no adverts, and then you're like, oh my God, I'm not being lied to and made to feel insecure on every street corner all the time. 
So, and they did it on grounds of child mental health. And then they started planting trees and orchards in the middle of the city, again, on grounds of child mental health. So they're reconsidering what a city is. Have they, uh, have they had any sort of research looking at what the impact of this has been? I haven't been? been back, but I would love no. to. That was about I five mean, years ago. You mentioned that. I mean, obviously, in Bradford, we have the Born in Bradford project, which is... Um, uh, for, uh, does, do all of you heard about the Born in Bradford project? There's a few people nodding, but, but not everyone. It, it's the biggest project of its kind in the world where they've been studying a cohort, I think it's 13,000 uh, children from before they were even born. Right. And it's the biggest one to then follow it through. It's an academic, a rigorous wow. academic study. And it's a massive, massive study. And what Born in Bradford has found, because some of the cohort are now in their teens, um, so, and, and they, they're following through. What they've, they've managed to find academic backup for lots of things that we probably already knew, but have never actually been scientifically proven. The big one that they found is around access to green space and the impact on mental mm. health. And they've really found all sorts of stuff, but they've also found things about, so one, one of the big changes that's come through it was they've got some research which they've linked to research in Canada and other places around Alzheimer's and the impact of uh, traffic pollution on mental health mm. and particularly on children's development. And they, they've pointed out that all, this is off the subject a bit, but mm. that, that we, we, in this country, we have always designed schools. You have your school here, you have your playground here off the road. And they've done some research to show if you actually try and move playgrounds, even by something like 20, 25 mm. feet, mm. they think the potential impact on children's mental health Amazing. of moving them away from roads is going to be absolutely yeah. enormous. And so th there's lots of things coming through. So interested yeah. with Grenoble, yes. what they're doing there. But again, we're, we're finding some of that yeah. stuff here in Bradford. If you look at the happiest society in the world, which is Finland, despite the fact that 100 years ago they were in the middle of a terrible civil war, uh, really vicious. Um, their children report themselves the happiest and least stressed. They've done away with exams. They do continuous They've assessment. also done away with private education. You're not allowed to pay for education. Yeah, in they, they don't do need they? to. Um, they, they, um, they tax companies properly uh, mm. and pay for it. So children aren't put under pressure. Um, they don't make them start reading until they're six, seven. So there's, they don't get labelled or stigmatised really young, mm. like can't do it, can't keep up. Uh, teaching is a very high-status profession in Finland and it's very yeah. difficult to get into. So that changes everything right there. I, I would definitely advocate that. I also think we need an entirely new political class. I mean, with some very honourable exceptions, who you will know, I think a lot of our political class don't really know anything and they are basically ruling because they feel they were born to rule and they were handed it. Uh, and it, the, the absolute bankruptcy uh, of ideas, vision, idealism, hope, faith or understanding of ordinary people uh, it, it is enraging, uh, and you can see it everywhere. I listened to an amazing podcast yesterday uh, from the writer who's written the book about why public school actually should disqualify people from political office. That's what he says. As somebody who was expelled from public school, I completely agree. <laughs> Talking about yeah. attachment theory and yeah. what the impact of, of, of sending kids right. to boarding school yeah, is on great. psychological and emotional yeah, development. Not great. Um, and then when I interviewed the chief exec of Calderdale, Robin Tudnam, who's a wonderful man, he said, well, how we've done it in Halifax, we've made the bridge harder to jump off, you know, that's number one. And then we're thinking about how we make a healthful environment. So it's buses for kids so they can come in from the outside into the town. Otherwise, they're stuck smoking skunk and playing net in the PlayStation or whatever. They can't get into their friends. How are they supposed to maintain their networks? So it's thinking like that. And I would return huge sums of money from central government to local because the cuts are killing them. You know, you've got people of enormous vision. You only have to walk into Bradford from the station to see there are people of vision in charge of this city. Fund them, you know. They would be my basics, I think. 
And then I would change the language around mental health, um, because I even find those two words grey and stigmatising. I would say it's a question of well-being. We've all got it. Madness is part of us. Let's move together and be very frank about our conditions so that we can help each other and not feel we're shut in boxes. Uh, and I think that's almost the most frightening thing, is that big tech wants you alone with your phone. That's what it wants. And they're doing an awfully good job. And while that pertains, we're, we're not going to grow as a species, I think. And what about cannabis? We'll go back to where you, you mentioned this right at the beginning. Yes. Because one of the other things you say in your book is that you can track your, your episodes to your cannabis use as well. I and could. you also talked about everyone else that you met in hospital in Wakefield yes. and cannabis. Um, I think a lot of the cannabis that people are, are smoking now is way, way, I mean, I'm in my 50s, but way, way different to what was around when I was a teenager. Sure. What should we be doing about that? Well, it's very difficult because we haven't got a mature... Um, society in terms of media in at all. So David Nutt, Sir David Nutt, um, many years ago under Blair, I think, uh, ran a trial um, where they decriminalised it in Lambeth. Uh, and actually it was working. And then the Daily Mail wouldn't let them do it. And one chief scientific advisor after another said to the government, it's a flipping health issue. We must decriminalise so that we can control it so that they're not smoking skunk, which is the you know, equivalent to drinking meths when they're 15, which is more or less guaranteed psychosis. One third uh, of this wonderful psychiatrist in London's patients, uh, Robin, I can't remember his surname, he reported earlier this year that one third of the psychosis he sees is in young people down to skunk. And it, it's an absolute iron link. And we've only been very misty about that hitherto. So the problem is, if we decriminalise, I don't think in a way our media or our establishment has sufficiently grown up to handle that. What I would do would have adverts on the size of every single bus saying skunk gives you psychosis. I would absolutely demystify that because it's dangerous. You know, in Morocco, they smoke kind of light, high, happy hash. And the way they do it is they have one after dinner, because I asked them, how do you smoke dope all your life? You know, one after dinner and one before you go to bed. And you, you know, for most people, that's probably fine. And of course, we all know lots of people who are fine with it. I've got a great friend who is a high-functioning uh, super teacher, really, uh, and it's permanently stoned. Um, but I can't do that. And the point is, you don't know if that bullet is, is for you until you spin the chamber. So th the system we currently have is prohibition plus roulette, um, which is murderous. It's murderous on children's health and their life chances, you know. Thank you. We're just coming up towards the end, Horatio. Before we, we finish off, let me just ask you, because how honest you've been and how open you are, and because you are a person with a voice and a platform and influence, do you think your book's going to make any change? Oh, it has done already uh, in, a, in a wonderfully meaningful way. Um, I get letters or emails most days uh, from either people who have suffered or people who know people who have. Mm. Lots from relatives and friends, um, and you know it doesn't make it doesn't change anybody's life, but it means that uh, it can provide, I think, a, d a d measure of reassurance and I hope some insight um, that you know we it is all changeable from the individual up to the social level. It will be and can be different, and given where we are, that is an immensely positive outlook. <laughs> Yeah. So thank you for the question. Well, no, no. Well, thank, thank you for the book. As I said to you, I found, I found it unbelievably reassuring and insightful. Oh, I'm glad. Re you. And, and, I, and, and it's had a profound effect on me 
on understanding lots of things that have oh, gone God. on around me in, in recent years. So, so here's another person saying yeah. to you, I know you've got another event that you're now doing the, the, the questioning on. Have you got time to sign any books? Yes, or? of course. Yeah. 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 Where, I'll, where I'll will that be? I'll go down to the tent. I down think, to the tent at Waterstones, probably. Down, yeah. Downstairs, yep. Yeah, it was Brilliant. more like a bee-in. Thank you so much. Thank Take you all care. for being here. Well. And keep, keep well, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, it's been a real delight to chat. Thank you.